Hey there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Album Addicts, a new ongoing branch of the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews podcast, where each episode we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. All right, Ray, we made this a regular gig now. Welcome aboard. Well, thank you. I'm kind of like herpes. Now I'm here, you can't get rid of me. <laughs> so Ray and I discussed what album we wanted to review this episode, and we came up with Guns N' Roses' 1987 debut album, Appetite for Destruction. Now, Ray, tell us how Guns N' Roses came into your life and how this album popped up on your radar. <laughs> it's kind of corny. My ma used to get uh, Reader's Digest. You know, they have their view on things and they have a certain agenda. But they had a thing about rock bands at the time. They talked about Slayer, Guns N' Roses, and Venom. And Reader's Digest. And Reader's Digest. And how, well, you know, how they were, you know, agents of Satan. Uh, so, oh, shit. I remember reading about Guns N' Roses and my buddy got the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction and Blue Oyster Cult's Club Ninja for his birthday, and I borrowed, <laughs> I borrowed Appetite for Destruction because I wanted to see what it was about. Some people told me they were a lot like Van Halen. I was a huge Van Halen fan at the time, so I gave it a listen. All right. And I liked it, and I also felt guilty about it because of that stupid article. It's like the first time you remember cuffing your carrot, and you, it's like, whoa, that's not good. Yeah. So I liked it. I was like, but I shouldn't like Guns N' Roses. So the article said Guns N' Roses was satanic? They did, yeah, and they advocated rape because they thought the album cover. Oh, right, that album cover. The original album artwork yes. uh, was about that. But yeah, I dug it. I, I mean, I, at the time, I wasn't as rabid about it, but I thought, this is good rock and roll. Yeah. So that's how they kind of came in. Sweet Child of Mine didn't grab me so much, but definitely Welcome to the Jungle and It's So Easy were yeah. like the two kind of drew me in. All right. For me, my first memory of Guns N' Roses is seeing the music video for Welcome to the Jungle, and I thought it was okay, but it didn't set my world on fire or right. anything. Mm -hmm. It was a slow build for this band. The album was out for quite a while before it really started to catch on. Right, yeah, no, definitely. But it, there was a groundswell about it in my high school. You know, people were starting to listen to it because mm -hmm. MTV started pushing the video for Welcome to the Jungle. This is before Sweet Child of Mine hit. So a couple people I knew picked up the album. Eventually, I warmed up to Welcome to the Jungle, and then I got mm -hmm. this on cassette. And I got this before Sweet Child of Mine okay, became so, yeah. hit. So I listened to it, and I knew it. Mm -hmm. By that time, I liked it. At this point, the hard rock and metal fans were paying attention to it. Yep. And I had a feeling there was something about this band. You know, I mean, they were, it, it just kept building and building. You know, people were oh, yeah. starting to listen to it more and more. Mm -hmm. and then a couple of months later, boom, this fucking thing exploded. Yeah. And Guns N' Roses became, you know, bigger than the Goodyear blimp. You'd see as many Guns N' Roses t-shirts as you would see Iron oh, Maiden t-shirts around. And that's how it started for me. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to lay down some basic facts about this album so we can all get on the same page. Appetite for Destruction is a debut studio album by American hard rock band Guns N' Roses, released on July 22, 1987 on the Geffen label. It was produced by Mike Klink and was recorded from March to April 1987 at Rumbo Studios, Canoga Park, California, Take One Studio, Burbank, California, The Record Plant, Los Angeles, California, and Can-Am Studio, Tarzana, Tarzana, California. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified 18 times platinum by the RIAA. Nice. Damn. <laughs> Next, I'll give out the band's lineup card. We've got W. Axel Rose on lead vocals, synthesizer, and percussion. Slash on lead guitar, rhythm guitar, acoustic guitar, slide guitar, and talk box. Okay. Izzy Stradlin on rhythm guitar, lead guitar, backing vocals, and percussion. Duff Rose McKagan on bass and backing vocals. And Steven Adler on drums, percussion, and backing vocals. All right, let's get into a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. Kicking things off is Welcome to the Jungle, written by Guns N' Roses. Yeah, we got the money, honey, we got the money. 
Ray, what do you think about Welcome to the Jungle? At that point, I had never heard anything quite like that. That riff definitely sucked me in right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, the little the, the digital delay part, I mean, that was cool, but like when the main riff actually kicked in, this is great. And then they keep it throughout the verse section and everything else. So that was my gateway drug to Guns N' Roses for sure. I think and it was for just about everybody. Yeah, and it was just on repeat for me constantly, constantly. It's a great opening track, great lead-off track to suck people in and show sure. them know what Guns N' Roses is about. Yeah, for me, it has like a long build-up to the main part of the song. And mm-hmm. Axel does this whale. He sounds like a police siren almost yeah i never thought of that but you're right um when the track kicks in sometimes i have a problem with screechy high-pitched vocals right it takes me a little bit to get used to them so when mm. i first heard his vocals i went oh shit what <laughs> yeah but i quickly got adjusted to him it was much easier adjustment for me than say like brian johnson where mm-hmm. it took me a little bit to get into him right yeah no definitely axel's personality and charisma already shines through on this song yeah duff's bass is awesome in the breakdown section there oh with the bass yeah, yeah. i mean nobody i mean there, there were a lot of hair metal bands at that time they were kind of messing around but the bass is not that prominent most of your hair metal bands had a bassist like Bobby Dahl, who played like your basic Michael Anthony yeah. kind of root yeah. fifth, root fifth. But no, Duff gets a little bit of a bass rip yeah, there, and it just builds the tension for yeah, that song. Yeah, it really does. And I guess that bass part was part of a song called The Fake that he brought to the band from an earlier punk band he was in called The Veins. And I think that's kind of what Duff brought to Guns N' Roses. He had like a oh, yeah. punk background. and Yeah, and, definitely. He brought the punk attitude. Yeah, he brought that attitude and influence into the music. Yeah. The lyrics are about the dark, seedy side of Los Angeles and its streets, but Axel wrote these while visiting a friend in Seattle. <laughs> Supposedly, Axel claimed that when he got off a bus in New York, he ran into a homeless man who said, you know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby, and you're gonna die. And I guess where <laughs> yeah. that famous lyric came from. Right. Feel My Serpentine, I like that lyric too. There's a lot of, yeah, I read that it's that. about Axel's stage dance, you know, that back and forth stage dance that he yeah, does, another yeah. famous thing that he does, but I also thought it was about his dick. <laughs> well, yeah, you, know, you can't go wrong with phallic imagery, to, you yeah. know, it would get on the snake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this was the album's second single in September 1987, which didn't do shit at the time, right. but it was re-released in October 1988 after Sweet Child of Mine hit, mm-hmm. and then it reached number seven in the U.S. and number 24 in the U.K., I think this is basically their best known song, don't you? I mean, I would say they yeah. played it. You know, stadiums for sporting events and things like that. Yeah, know, and it, I think for rock fans generally, probably yeah. they're their best ones. I think probably people get more for like the top forty stuff might go for the other. Right. Uh, type of I tend to think that when you hear the name Guns N' Roses, this is the first song you think. Oh of. yeah, no, definitely. The next track is "It's So Easy," written by Guns N' Roses and West Arkeen. I see your sister in a Sunday dress She's out to freeze, she pounds her best She's out to take, no need to drive She's ready to make It's so easy, easy When everybody's trying to please me, baby It's so easy, easy When everybody's trying to please me Cars are crashing every night I drink and drive everything Ray, what do you think about this one? This song, it's like an auditory portrait, I think, of what was going on around them at the time. A lot of craziness. I mean, yeah. I've read reports that they all rented this one house, and it was just, you know, drugs. Yeah, it was a flop lo- house, a right? A flop house, yeah. basically, and there's like a you know, leftover McDonald's wrapper, except for like Axel's room. Supposedly, Axel had his own little pristine kind of... Well, um, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but uh, nowadays, I don't think you can get away with lyrics like, turn around, bitch, I've got a oh, use yeah. for you. <laughs> it's very yeah. un-PC. Yeah, it's Where, totally, yeah. yeah, it was before that whole wave really took over. The riff is great. Great. The little kind of non-distorted, clean channel guitar section coming in the middle out of nowhere is 
great in and of itself. This and a couple others are like are my the three that are my favorites. They're your go-to's. Yeah, for sure. When I first heard this, I thought the band had two lead singers. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it was the same guy singing. Oh, yeah, I yeah. I didn't get it at first. I immediately liked Axel's low voice as yeah. opposed to his screechy voice. Yeah. And this song, I was shocked at all the swears that were in it at the time. That, that's what kind of made Guns N' Roses cool. Like I said, I was mm-hmm. in high school when this came out. We're like, they're swearing all over the place. Can <laughs> yeah. you believe this? We thought it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I see you standing there. You think you're so cool. Why don't you just fuck off? I mean, I can't believe... What? <laughs> I can't believe they actually said that. Yeah, yeah. No. It's a hard-rocking, punkish song. It was primarily written by Duff. Duff brought this to the band, basically. I can see that, yeah. And West Arkeen, I guess he was a musician friend of the band. Mm-hmm. The lyrics are about how the band didn't have much, but there were groupies and female hangers on that they could live off of. Mm-hmm. It was easy to do. You know, there, were fe- there was an emptiness to it. You know, they didn't care about these women or anything. You know, just somebody to leech off of. Yeah, exactly. The band's controversial, misogynistic lyrics are first on display here. This was often the band's concert opener. Uh, it was the first single, actually, too, which also didn't do anything. It hit number 84 in the U.K., and that's... Right. I think it was only released in the U.K., too, though. I don't think it was a U.S. single. Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing it. On, like yeah. At the time, it would have been like Rock 102 or uh They would have had to beep the shit out of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's just no way you could have gotten away <laughs> by the so FCC. It's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy. You know, that's, that's all yeah. you'd be hearing. Or you'd get like, that new thing where they like backwards mask the cuss word, yeah. whatever happened yeah. to be at the time, and it just sounds mad corny. Continuing on through the album, we have A Night Train, written by Guns N' Roses. Ray, your thoughts. What's cool about this song is it's definitely got your standard classic rock elements to it. Just right. kind of like a bluesy-based riff for the verse section. But then they're like, they get into a little bit more melody in the chorus. Or the guitar-wise, riff-wise, there's a little bit more going on there. And it's another case where Axel's painting another picture of some Billy Badass, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously he doesn't really care much about anything except getting lit and yep. setting his old lady out to get bottles and night train, which I've never actually drank. I had some, my big go-to like cheap booze was Mad Dog 2020. Yeah. I never had to night train Wild Irish Rose or Thunderbird, so. Right. Um, but supposedly it was a good cheap way to get screwed up back in the day. And Probably when they weren't making much money, makes sense. That was their cold gin. Yeah. Uh, Steven Adler on the cowbell, baby. I love the cowbell. <laughs> Got fever. There's an excellent <laughs> guitar interplay on the verses between Izzy and Slash, and I'm mm-hmm. a sucker for guitar interplay. Yeah, same. Axel's sure. vocals are all attitude. I love the pre-chorus melody, you know, loaded like a freight train. I love that part, yep. which actually introduces the song, too. Yeah, it, it does. It sets it up. Yeah, it's the first vocal thing that you hear. The lyrics are about the band's fondness for the Night Train Express, a cheap California fortified wine. I didn't even know what fortified wine was. I'd look that up. <laughs> Is it like Wonder Bread for wine? You get vitamins A, Well, D. they add brandy to it. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> and, and jack up the alcohol content even more. So they would just buy this stuff and get fucked up on it. I guess they come in like two liter bottles or something oh, like that. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like really, really cheap wine. The guitar solo is split between Izzy and Slash. I think Izzy had a big hand in the writing of this song, too. Okay, so the yeah. first part of the solo guitar solo is Izzy, and then yep. Slash takes the second part. Okay. It's a kick-ass rocker that's a concert staple, yeah. and Slash stated that it was his favorite song to perform live. And you mentioned the um, 
guitar interplay with the two of them. And I think, yeah. in a lot of ways, Guns N' Roses are kind of the heirs to the throne of like that same kind of, somebody called it one time, guitar telepathy that Brad Whitford and Joe Perry had. Right. Or even to probably some degree, Keith Richards and the various yes. guitars that he worked with over time. It's like they're not exactly playing the exact, exact same riff they can on, a, on yeah. occasion, but there's always one's coming up with like a little bit of like an atmospheric way to accentuate the main riff, yeah. and they just go back and forth. And they and kind of the, weave together. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's really what guitar interplay is, and that's what the Stones were known for. Yeah. And then Aerosmith, the Guns N' Roses are the successor. Like you said, it went to the Stones to Aerosmith to Guns N' Roses. Oh, big time. So let's move on to Out to Get Me, written by Guns N' Roses. Hear about this one. All the music on this album, I'm pretty good with. This particular guitar part didn't really grab me. The riff is kind of like a generic blues rock riff. What actually saves it though is, and you know I'm not a lyric guy, as I've mentioned in the past, but the lyrics I thought saved the song for yeah. me. Supposedly, Axl Rose, when he was a kid, got a lot of trouble when he was in Indiana, and it was talking about that. I mean, you know, young guy, you know, doing stupid stuff and cops being out to get you. Yeah. So or this is one of those songs where the vocal and the lyrics actually saves it for me. I'd give it a B, B minus right on there. Yeah. In my notes, the first thing I wrote down, it's the first track on the record that doesn't grab me. <laughs> it's not awful. It's got a decent riff and slide guitar. Right. And it's a more mid-tempo rocker. Mm-hmm. The lyrics, like you said, were inspired, well, it was inspired by an instant incident in Los Angeles in which supposedly the police were looking for Axel on a bogus rape charge. Oh, jeez. But he laid low and they couldn't find him. Eventually they moved on to somebody else and mm-hmm. I guess it just kind of disappeared into the ether. Right. The lyrics are filled with paranoia, though, about anyone who tries to hold you down or hold you back, you know, right. they're out to get me, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, well, they say write what you know and I'm sure he knows paranoia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is basically, for me, just an album track that, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't disrupt the album's flow, keeps it moving. Yeah, I think what my favorite part of the song is where he's like, I've got something building up inside for so fucking long. Yeah. Yeah. And he's selling that lyric when he you is. hear that. He sounds like a guy who's been like just kind of living in a pressure cooker. Yeah. And he's like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to get me. And now we come to Mr. Brownstone, written by Guns N' Roses. Ray, who are you dancing with? <laughs> Mr. Brownstone. <laughs> uh, this song, when I first heard this, I just couldn't believe how funky it actually was. Yeah. And I would almost give right this Right off song, the bat. Yeah. With that opening, waka chaka, you know. Oh, yeah. Totally. And if you listen to it, I was just thinking about the other day, the drum pattern that uh, Adler's playing, that's the Bo Diddley beat. Yes. And I was like, holy cow. And then they turn it and they change it completely into like some sort of 70s cop 
movie or cop show like uh, chase music or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and the congas in the background, the accenture. Like who who put congas in the back yeah. of a hard rock yeah. song back in like 1987? Guns N' Roses yeah. did, and it yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, this is another one of those songs where I didn't know it was Axel doing the lead vocals. It wasn't on my radar at the time. Right. I wasn't checking it out. Right. But I was like, wow, this guy's actually really cool. And when they actually blend the two together, you can actually hear his screech voice on top of his kind of like David yeah. Bowie esque. Yeah, they're kind of both. Voice. They're mixed on top of each other. Yeah. I love the production Same. on this album. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. Is if Duff McKagan said like with Adler. McKagan and Stradlin were both Prince and Cameo fans. They like 80s punk. Yes. And Adler had like a gargantuan drum set. Supposedly, they claimed they would hide the rest of his kit and they would leave him the hi-hat, the ride cymbal, the snare and the bass and that's all he would have for like some of their practice sessions. Wow. Because they wanted him that just like dead in the pocket. Yeah. No frills, funky drumming. Right. And it shows up on this song beautifully. That's cool. This song was supposedly written by Slash and Izzy while they were sitting around Izzy's apartment complaining about being heroin addicts. (laughs) Brownstone is their slang term for heroin. I don't think it's like a common term. It probably no, became I, one after like the Mexican, song. Mexican brown tar heroin. That sort yeah. of thing, yeah. Slash, Izzy, and Steven Adler were greatly affected by heroin, obviously. Right. I love the line, I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. I love that line. Yeah. And, and, and the way Axel delivers it is so good. Yeah. He's in his low voice again. His vocals on this track just blow me away. Mm-hmm. The track is just great all around. I love Slash's solo, and this is probably my favorite track on the album. Yeah, this is the one of the three that I, I go yeah. to. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's go down to Paradise City, written by Guns N' Roses. I'll what take you, you to Paradise what City. What do you got? Yeah. All right. This the first time I heard this, I'm gonna be frank with you. It didn't get me. And you know what it was? It probably the song could have been fine. And if I had actually been a little bit more open minded at the time, I would have done. But it was the keyboard that part synthesizer that reminded me of the Rockford Files Whee! theme. I can't even do it. I can't yeah. Even, I can't even hit the right pitch. Yeah. It's it's just I was like, why are they do taking a pretty decent song and turning it into the fucking Rockford Files? Yeah. It's become endearing at this stage of the game, and it's it just showed that they were weren't afraid to experiment with stuff like that. This really was written by the entire band. Okay. Supposedly in the back of a van on their way back from a gig in San Francisco, including improvising the chorus lyrics. Slash's original lyric idea was, take me down to the Paradise City where the girls are fat and they've got big titties. (laughs) But they decided on the other one, the one that we all know. The main riff sounds a lot to me like Black Sabbath Zero the Hero. I picked that up. And then then I've read it online that other people Mm -hmm. recognize that too. Do you know that one from Born Again? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I I heard the Cannibal Corpse cover of it. Oh, okay, yeah. But yeah, that same same chromatic. I think Tracy Guns confirmed that too. Okay. And Andy McCoy of Hanoi Rocks claimed the chorus riff came from that band's song Lost in the City. Now, that one I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with Hanoi Rocks. Yeah, not really either. But Guns N' Roses loved them. They were supposedly a huge influence on them. But I don't know that particular track. And I didn't go back and listen to it. I usually do that, but I didn't. Mm. The verses are grimier and describe the perils of street life as if the Paradise City is a fantasy place that's got nothing to do with the realities of the hard city. At the end of the song, the temple picks up and the band bash their way through it. It's almost chaotic. Oh, yeah. That's where I think the punk comes through. Definitely in the end, on top of it. 
Yeah. Steven Adler is a highlight on this song for me, and to me, he's the best GNR drummer. Yeah. You know, later on, they got Matt Sorum, who's solid, but I, I just feel like Adler had the feel. Yeah. I think they said he had a, somebody said, Izzy said that when they lost him, there was a swing that Adler had right. that they could like all latch onto. And he said the chemistry was not the same with Matt, the, Sorum. Matt Sorum's playing. Yeah. yeah. I believe it. You can, you can hear it. Yeah. It's the longest track at six minutes, 45 seconds, and it was the fourth and last single. It reached number five in the U.S. and number six in the U.K., and this fucker was played on MTV. Oh, yeah. Constantly. Yeah. Like, you, do, you see Axl Rose in his like white sports jacket or his tuxedo yeah. jacket spinning around stage like 24-7. Yeah. For years and years, this was their closing track of their yeah. shows, too. So this was a huge song for them. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on My Michelle, written by Guns N' Roses. Well, 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 Ray. Well, well, well. Remember the first time I looked at the cassette, I was like, are you serious? They're doing a fucking Beatles cover? Yeah. I, until oh, I actually listened you, to it. Can you yeah. imagine that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can actually see them doing that. It, they might be able to make it in their own kind of Guns N' Roses kind yeah. of way. They could yeah. possibly pull it off. I mean, they did Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah. Probably more up their alley, but still. Yeah, oh, for sure. The song, the, the intro, it's kind of like that... Uh, eerie atmospheric yeah, riff in the beginning and then when it kicks in it's just pure titty bar sleeve <laughs> yes. which is what I love yeah it's a scuzzy track and and the story is talking about man it's that one chick in high school you went to was like messed up on drugs and you don't know <laughs> why yep. she is the way she is but you know at the same time he's you know telling you, you know, tough it out you know things, yeah. are gonna, things are gonna pick up for you and I almost wondered at the time was like I was trying to figure out the age like is this a Michelle Pfeiffer reference or something <laughs> like that no it's not it's uh, actually about Michelle Young a friend of the band that slash knew since junior high school Mm-hmm. And the lyrics reference realities about her life, whether about her drug use, her mother passing away, and her dad working in the porn industry. All the lyrics in this track are supposedly true. Wow. They literally wrote this song about this girl. Oh, man. Uh, Michelle heard Elton John's Your Song on the radio while they were hanging out. She mm-hmm. said that she wished that somebody would write a song, a nice romantic song, <laughs> about, about her. So now, apparently, the, the, the initial draft, the first lyrics, were in that vein. Like, actually oh, yeah. wrote these words that were this like, sweet love song to her. Right. But he didn't like that. He said it just wasn't reality. It didn't, you know, he wanted to write a more honest thing. So he came up with, <laughs> came up with a song that we all know. The music is dark and menacing with another good chorus. Axel's vocals are particularly ominous in this song. Yeah. They're almost kind of spooky. And incidentally, <laughs> yeah. Michelle, I guess today, she ended up cleaning up and moving across the country to get away from the scene. Good for her. So I did finally fall in love with her. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for love. <laughs> Next up is Think About You, written by Guns N' Roses. It's kind of funny because, like, 
On a couple tracks in this album, Axl Rose has got like a lot of personalities. And you know, you've got the kind of quasi-romantic one in Sweet Child of Mine. And then this one too, where he's almost kind of like the sensitive dude. Yeah. And uh, these are actually kind of sensitive lyrics. Yeah, you know, he's not that scared street kid. The chorus, the clean channel part of the chorus, almost how this has like a kind of a post-punky kind of cure thing. Yeah. On top of the fact they got these like rip and rock guitars that are yeah. in the verse well, there's, section. There's actually acoustic guitars. Okay. Mixed so, yeah. high up in there. That's why you got that weird sound. But it's cool. I like yeah, it. No, it's very cool. Yeah. It's very cool. So, yeah, this one's a nugget. This is one of those ones that kind of creeps up on you. Yeah. And definitely awesome. I really like this track. Yeah. I feel it's yeah. the most <laughs> underrated track on the album. <laughs> Izzy almost solely wrote this song. He was the band's unsung hero, oh, in my sure. opinion. Yeah, no, definitely. He had a huge hand in the songwriting process of the band. He was a good guitar player. I don't think he was quite as good as Slash, or at least not as good a lead player. But as right. a songwriter, he was top-notch. Oh, yeah. And the band wasn't the same without him. I read that this tune is very influenced by Hanoi Rocks. It's basically a straight-up love song. Mm -hmm. Axel does some cool vocal gymnastics at the end of the track that he would expand upon to the nth degree on later albums. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the dude had some lungs on him. Axel and Slash never cared for this track, though, and I know that it's just an album track, and it's not the most love song on the record, but I've got a soft spot for it. I've always dug it. Yeah, and the ending is just kind of like, it's not really, it's just a quiet, bring-you-out kind of ending. It's not looking for the big door slam yep. of an ending. And then Axel does that vocal. It's good. Yep. And here comes Sweet Child of Mine, written by Guns N' Roses. say about this one as i've gotten older i've come to appreciate it more at the time if the chicks liked it i you didn't, didn't like it, it. Yeah, yeah i knew that it was like a big red flag you know this isn't supposed to be cheerleader prom music this right, is supposed to be right. rock and stuff supposedly yeah uh slash didn't dig it either and right. uh, that's why he came up with that, that guitar riff they're playing it and he yeah. was joking around well, yeah he's fucking around yeah and lo and behold that became like the signature thing it's kind yeah, of this that, is the song that broke this record yeah and it yeah. broke guns and roses kaboom yeah. It begins the whole world's fascination with this band. And once again, it's another it's kind of a sensitive... Oh, yeah, the lyrics uh, are. Super sensitive lyrics. They're genuine, too. Yeah, yeah. Which is not, if they're not, like, ironic or... No, no, it's definitely... Like, it's not being facetious. No, not, it's, gen, it's, it's coming from some place real. Yeah. Um, and at the time, I wasn't digging that. The solo at the end, I loved. I think once they get into that darker minor key, yeah. with, with the where do we go now part, yeah. I, that, that was that part. Like, yeah. I it wanting, changes in the solo, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the second the second solo. Yeah, that's there's two distinct solo sections, Yeah, it right? changes over to a minor key, and that's when like his like really ripping solo comes in. Then they get yeah. to the where do we go now, yeah. and then just kind of close, close it out from there. At the time, I wanted the entire song to be like that. Dark like that. Dark like that. And it, but looking back, it's kind of the highs and lows of love, you yeah. know? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, this song's all about that eight-note riff yeah, that yeah. Slash came up with. Izzy liked it. The whole band began composing the song on the spot. Slash said he couldn't believe it. It became a hit. The band thought it would just be filler. Right. Which is funny because I heard this before it was released as a single. Mm -hmm. See, when I first heard this, I went, that's a ballad, but I, I knew, dude. I heard that, I went, that's catchy as fuck. Right. And when they released it as a single, I wasn't surprised. Now, I was surprised it became a number one hit. Mm -hmm. But I knew that there was something to this track when I first heard mm -hmm. it. Just because of that riff. Right. Lovey-dovey lyrics. This time written by Axel was inspired by Aaron Everly, his girlfriend at the time, and eventually his first wife. It was kind of a mm -hmm. tumultuous relationship. Don Everly's kid, yeah. Yeah. 
Two lengthy guitar solos where Slash shows off his chops. I like his playing. He's not a shredder. He's got a classic rock style, very inspired by Aerosmith, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Cream, the, the classic yeah. British players, and, and mm-hmm. Hendrix. He's not my favorite guitar player. I'd almost right. say that he's kind of overrated. He's worshipped by a lot of people. And I oh, go, yeah. You know, but he's an excellent guitar player. He's damn good. I dig the breakdown section at the end of the track. There's a little controversy about this song. I don't know if you heard about this. Mm-hmm. There's a song by the band Australian Crawl. The song mm. is called Unpublished Critics. It's from 1981, so this predates this song. Okay. And I guess it wasn't the band itself, but the media in Australia latched onto this and said mm-hmm. they ripped this song off for some child of mine. Now, I did go back and listen you to this on YouTube just because I was curious. Right. There's a lot of similarities. Okay. You hear this and you go, oh, fuck, that sounds like Sweet Child of Mine. But come on. The <laughs> band had never heard the music before. Right. I hate that shit. You know, everybody imitates everybody. You have yes. so many chords, and the Western music system, we have 12 tones. Yes. So, yeah, you're going to exhaust all the different permutations of notes that you're going to get in chords. And, yeah, right. so. and it's different enough. They're two different songs, no question about it. Yeah. But holy shitballs, Batman, this was a massive hit. Oh, you it could hit. not escape it. <laughs> it's their only U.S. number one, and it was number six in the U.K. I mean, what else can I say about this? From here on out, they, mm-hmm. it would never be the same. Yeah. They went from loser dirtbag <laughs> yeah. underdogs to one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah, there you go. And a, a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Moving on, we get You're Crazy, written by Guns N' Roses. How about this one? This song I love. I love. Actually, I love both versions of the song. You know, yeah. because they have the acoustic one on Lies, right. and that one's just kind of it's it's got its own thing. But this one is pure energy from yeah. start to finish. Yeah, this one really rips. There's nothing wrong with this song. It, it just it, it's one of those things that motivates you as you listen to it. Yeah. See, for me, this one didn't grab me as much. To me, it just sounds like something the band could do in their sleep. They knock mm-hmm. out songs like this all the time, and they, right. on the Use Your Illusion albums, there's a bunch of songs kind of like this. It's mm-hmm. fast, just quick bang, you're done. Right. Originally, this was a slower-paced acoustic number. The band eventually recorded and released on Lies, like you said. The lyrics are pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Axel was looking for real love and instead attracts yeah. crazy bitches. <laughs> They're all crazy. It's nothing deep. They're <laughs> <laughs> crazy. It's an album track. Nothing special for me. Mm-hmm. It's basic songwriting. Never did much for me. But you know, I, I didn't care for the acoustic version either. I don't even know which one I like better. It, it, mm-hmm. You know, this track just doesn't float my boat that much. Oh, right on. But it looks good on you. <laughs> Vive la différence. <laughs> the penultimate track is Anything Goes, written by Guns N' Roses and Chris Weber. this one 
Initially, this was not on my radar. Going back though, looking at it now, I'd say it's probably up there with the ones that I liked, I mentioned prior that I liked. Really? Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool because- You're now, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they got a, I think, I mean, it's just the Guero they got going in the back. Yeah. I always kind of like that. that. This is one of those songs for me that like shows their 70s roots. Right. You know? And yeah. I'm not just talking Zeppelin 70s. I mean, it could be Eric Burden in War, which that yeah. kind of made me think of kind of like the lowrider kind of. And that main, that dan, 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 dan. Yeah. I think they use that to good effect for introducing the regular verse and choruses before they go into that. And then when they bring it back at the end of the song and they turn it into that kind of sleazy swing, good choice on their part as right. far as songs go. Right. So that's become one of my favorites on this. Yeah, this was co-written by Izzy and Chris Weber, a guitarist who was with Axel and Izzy in the band Hollywood Rose, which mm -hmm. was a precursor that are Guns N' Roses. Right. That scene there, it was separate from the hair metal scene, but they all kind of like intertwine. You know, LA yeah. Guns, Hollywood Rose, Guns N' Roses, they all kind of like interchanged members and stuff like that. Until like An incestuous scene. Yeah, it kind of, <laughs> kind of was until LA Guns and Guns N' Roses, right. more or less, that's what it became. <laughs> it tries to maintain a sleazy groove, especially in the verses, but for me, like the last track is just okay, it doesn't knock my socks off. Mm -hmm. Axel doesn't even do anything special with the vocals, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of there. There's a talk box in the solo section. Yeah. I mean, and unless man. you're Peter Frampton, fuck the talk box. <laughs> you not have talk box. What about Joe Walsh? Not in his you got me there. Okay. okay. Peter Frampton and Joe Walsh. Anybody else? I was never a big fan of the Richie Sambora talk box Ex stuff. Oh, so that screw that. Happen. So yeah. unless you're Peter Frampton or yeah. Joe Walsh, you're the only two people on earth <laughs> allowed to use a talk box in your songs. <laughs> That sealed it for me. This yeah. is my least favorite track. And when you're my least favorite, <laughs> you're known as Aaron's Stinky Stinker. <laughs> Another thing I forgot to mention was with Slash. He's got a vocabulary, as you know, it's like steeped in, like you said, blues, like classic, yeah, classic music, rock. But it's also like basic 50s rock and roll riff. Sure. Like he, there's a part of that song which is like a basic rock riff. Yeah, eventually that's, like, that's where it all comes from. Yeah, right? yeah. and he, he pays homage to that. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't try to like make his riff fit the, what was ever current in 1987. Yeah. He'll still bring it in there. Like One he, thing I will say about Slash, I was kind of dissing him before. I didn't mm -hmm. really mean to do that. I don't, I don't mean to imply that he's not a good guitar player. He's right. a great guitar player. Right. He was very different than what was going on in L.A. at the time. He wasn't oh, yeah. a he wasn't, hair metal shredder. Yeah, no, he was not Yngwie. He was no. not trying to be Yngwie. He was not Yngwie. He wasn't Eddie Van Halen. That's, no. that, that wasn't his gig. Yeah. But no, I, I do like his playing. I want to make that very clear <laughs> to the listeners out there. This album was, like, when they were messing around to record, this is where he discovered the Les Paul Marshall mix. Yes. That was a big He thing. discovered his sound. Yeah. Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth said, man, back in the day before Guns N' Roses, you could pick up a Les Paul pretty much dirt cheap anywhere. Yeah. But once Slash started playing him, yeah. Their sales for Les Pauls went to the roof. Yeah, to this day, you yeah. still can't. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Good night. And that brings us to the final track, Rocket Queen, written by Guns N' Roses. If I Okay, Ray, lay it on me. This riff is a fucking bit of brilliance. Yeah. 
I think with, with this album in general, it's like they had really memorable riffs. The ones that like didn't stand, I mean, the riff wasn't that great, but these guys had a healthy handful of memorable riffs. Yeah, they did. But no, that main riff is great. The lyrics themselves, just kind of like this kind of sleazy Mrs. Robinson kind of. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was based on an early supporter of the band named Barbie Von Grief. <laughs> I think I pronounced that correctly. Yeah. Uh, she was a Hollywood madam huh. who told Axel she wanted to start a band called Rocket Queen, and then she just became known as the Rocket Queen. She's even credited in the record's liner notes. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, oh, so that's, that's who awesome. the actual Rocket Queen is. I'll be damned. But no matter how you slice it, the middle section with the sex noises is what <laughs> this track is best known for. Yeah, yeah. It's a doubt. authentic. <laughs> and it was between Axel and a woman named Adriana Smith, who was Steven Adler's girlfriend at the time. But she was kind of trying to exact revenge for his cheating on her. She did it after getting a bottle of Jack Daniels, and Axel was yelling at her to stop faking it as they were doing it. <laughs> It probably was titillating at times when I first heard it you know, yeah. to horny teenagers. We're just like, oh, wow, that's right. pretty cool. But now it's just, for me, it's completely unnecessary. You don't even need it. <laughs> Do you ever wonder if that's Axel actually doing some of the screams in the background? Because he's I, capable of doing that little vocal. You know, I think I, if you listen, I think you can hear his voice. I think you hear a little bit like, ugh. <laughs> if you really listen closely to it, like in headphones, yeah. I think you can hear him in there. Now, you don't hear him yell at her to yeah. stop faking it. Yeah. But. Make it real. <laughs> <laughs> But it is a well-written song. Uh, the music was brought to the band by Slash and Duff from a band they were in together called Road Crew. It's got a great bass line and guitar interplay again. Yep. It's a great heavy mid-tempo track that has a bit of funk in the rhythm. There's that funk influence yep. again. And this song is basically comes in two parts. You've got that main part of the song. Yep. And then you get the solo section. Mm-hmm. And then after the sexy bridge, yeah. <laughs> you get the big drums that go into that coda part, which is my favorite part of the song. Where it almost slows up a little bit. Yeah. And the lyrics change. Axel becomes like more open. He's offering like friendship and caring. And more. Yeah. I really like that part. To me, that's yeah. my favorite part of the song. That, that kind of let me take care of the horror kind of uh, <laughs> 22 Acacia yeah. Avenue yeah. kind of thing. You know? Exactly. Avenue. Avenue. Yeah. I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah, I dig this track. I yeah. think you know, it's a solid album closer. Yeah, without a doubt. Now that the track-by-track track is done, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to five system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is a hot turd Ferguson. <laughs> Ray, what are your final thoughts on Appetite for Destruction? Appetite for Destruction. As far as like my early like bands or albums that like became near and dear to my heart, I like this. It, didn't, it wasn't like Van Halen 1984 or Rats Round and Round for me at the time. So 16-year-old me would give it a four and a half. Right. Maybe almost a 4.75. Well, that's a first on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> if, it's, if it's possible. But uh, I'm torn between that. I, I'm thinking I'm going to stick with that. It's a great album. The 4.75 or 4.5? 4.75. Okay. Great album, and I, I can appreciate it from a different perspective at 44. Guns N' Roses was that kid in high school you went with who probably had like lived with his mother, or did live with one parent, one of them was dead, and he got the <laughs> shit kicked out of him. Whatever surviving parent was drunk. This is the kid who came in with a pack of Pall Malls. <laughs> And, like, came to class shit-faced and, like, would throw chairs in the middle of the lunchroom. And you kind of were scared of this dude. You were scared shitless of this dude. But at the same time, you kind of admired him and wanted to be him. That was what Guns N' Roses embodied for me at that time, and still does. And there was such a change from what was going on at the time. And really kind of almost 
were at the forefront of pre-grunge. Yeah, oh yeah. And they opened the door for They're grunge. kind of the bridge. Yeah, they were the bridge. So I'm going to stick with the 4.75 <laughs> years down the road. There was a period of time for about six to eight years there, I'd say, when Guns N' Roses were the biggest band in the world, and Axl Rose was the biggest rock star in the world, entirely due to the success of this record. Mm. In a lot of ways, they were the successors to the Stones and Aerosmith. They were like the next logical thing, the two guitars, the drums, the yep. bass, and the outgoing, extroverted lead singer frontman. I cannot stress enough how much this band was embraced by the hard rock and metal community. They were a sensation. Yep. And it seemed like all fans of heavy music lost their shit over this band. Oh yeah. They looked like dirt bags and acted <laughs> like they didn't care about anything from the album cover controversy to the cursing on live TV award show. I love that, yeah. <laughs> we started coming down and hang out and shoot. Yep. Especially <laughs> Axl Rose, who was prone to doing really stupid shit like jumping into the audience to fight with audience members yeah. and then waiting forever to go on stage, sometimes for hours. You think it's like a power thing with him or... Oh, it has to be. Yeah. He took control of the band when they hit big. It seemed like every other day X was getting involved in some kind of controversy and the music world waited for what he was going to do next. So everybody mm -hmm. was fascinated by him. Yeah. I was too. I, you know, everybody was. Yeah. And the funny part is for a band so noted for its substance abuse... Axel was relatively clean yeah. compared to the rest of those guys. He wasn't heavy into the heroin like Slash and Izzy and right. Adler. Well, he had his own mental bag with well, psychological the, well, issues. I was just yeah. about to say, the yeah. thing is, he must have just been a natural wackadoodle. Yeah. <laughs> a wee bit touched. Appetite for Destruction for me is the time bomb with the longest timer in history. It took about a year for it to hit, but yeah. when it did, it went nuclear. Yeah. It's got to be one of the great all-time debut records. Yeah. I mean, 30 million worldwide sales, you know, must mean something, right? There are some iconic songs on here. The band lives down this record, its legacy to this day. After this album, the story of Guns N' Roses becomes a drawn-out shit show. <laughs> Fit for tabloids, reality TV. Yeah. I'm not going to get into all that here right now. Neither of these, neither the band or the album are among my favorites. Mm -hmm. And Appetite isn't even my favorite Guns N' Roses album. And I think I'm the only one on planet Earth who thinks that. Mm -hmm. I give Appetite for Destruction a four, which means it's an excellent album. And it's the one that most rock fans need to own. Yeah. I mean, well, duh. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> you might not as well call yourself a rock fan and not own that album. Right. So we got a couple of iTunes reviews, folks. Yeah. Nice. The first one comes to us from our good friend Sam George, who wrote us another glowing five-star review, this time about last week's episode on the White Stripes. Sam writes, Fantastic. <laughs> this may be my favorite episode. R4 is going to blow up. I sure hope so, Sam. Thanks again for the kind words. And we are in talks to have Sam come on the podcast as a guest co-pilot. We're shooting for late July. Let's make it happen, Sam. Do we have that money coming to him yet? <laughs> all right. We should pay him to do all our yeah. reviews. <laughs> all right, man. The next review is also five stars and comes to us from Jesse Jackson. No, not <laughs> that Jesse Jackson. It's the host of the Set Lusting Bruce podcast, a show about Bruce Springsteen that if you're a fan of The Boss, you need to hear this podcast. Nice. Jesse writes... Aaron and his co-pilots, including his sister Shannon, do a wonderful job of talking about individual records. They discuss the good, the bad, and the sometimes ugly. Great job, team. Thanks for the review, Jesse. And Jesse and I are talking about doing a crossover episode with Set Lusting Bruce, which I hope materializes in the near future. I'm listening to it. And by the way, just because we started Album Addicts doesn't mean that Siblings on Record and the R4 podcast are defunct. They all still exist, so week to week, you never know what you're going to get. This is his expensive winos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll bring everybody on and do an R4 Summit podcast. Oh, that would be badass. It would be. We'll, <laughs> we'll see about that. And that's going to do it for this episode. 
You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. But you have to do it in haiku. <laughs> if you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also review the show on Facebook if you'd prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook review on the podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Shoot us an email. We'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Album Addicts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Don't forget to flush. Coral lawnmowers <laughs> providing ambiance. Really, we should try to get a sponsorship. <laughs> You're mowing your lawn. Shut up, he's trying to record something. <laughs> Fucking douchebag. <laughs> Man. And the lawnmower is back. Son of a bitch. Fuck me. <laughs> That's gonna drive me batshit crazy. Oh, man. Because it's gonna be so prominent in this fucking podcast. Come on, you gotta take a break sometime, man. You, you did before, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop, I think we got a couple. Yeah. <laughs> Go drink some water. You need to hydrate, dude. Come on. Give some night training. Right? <laughs> He'll be driving down Conway Street. <laughs> 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 George Strait. <laughs> you know, Lawnmower Man was originally a Stephen King story, and it's very... Did you ever see the movie? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, it was okay, but... The- Story is much different than oh, the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. The guy takes off his clothes and like it goes turns out, out, it, turns out he's like a centaur or, or like he's got goat feet. He's eating stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he eats the gopher. He eats the gopher. He eats the protagonist yeah. in the story too, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Lawnmower man. <laughs> Jesus. When well, he doesn't come in here, try to eat me. <laughs> now the fucking lawnmower stops. <laughs> you dick. <laughs> you fucking dick. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet as a mouse, motherfucker. <laughs> now they expect to hear the more in the background. Now you're letting everybody down, lawnmower man. Lawnmower man, what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> if I could slash your lawnmower, Charlie, you would, but plastic. So all I can do is take a lighter to it.